invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This morning we're going to look at God's transforming grace, particularly in the life of Christ, and then really think about how it trickles its way down into our lives as well. We'll be in the second half of Matthew 16, and then we'll actually get through the first half of chapter 17 as well as we look at transforming grace. And this morning we're going to see this central idea that God transforms his people by the power of his grace. God transforms his people by the power of his grace. Matthew 16, I'll begin reading in verse 21. We'll read just these first three verses to start out. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. My dad would use an expression when I was growing up uh, that I never fully understood when he would use it. He would, I don't know, something crazy would happen. He said, and he would say, well, today is a red letter day. And he, he did this for years. And finally, I think I was a teenager. And I was like, dad, what in the world does that even mean? And he said, well, that's like a day that you remember. It's a day that you circle in red on the calendar because it's a red letter day. Something significant happened that day. Something memorable happened that day. And really what we see here in the life of Christ is a series of red letter days, things that kind of stand out for us in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we do this, we'll see the life of Christ highlighted, and along it, really one of his disciples, one of his key disciples, and someone that I can pretty strongly identify with, and that's Peter. And I wanted to point us to Peter this morning as we begin and just say this, if, if you find yourself ever discouraged or kind of beaten down by the ups and downs of your life, I, can, I don't know, one minute you're on fire for Jesus, the next minute you're discouraged, you're beaten down, and you're almost forgetful that he's even a part of your life, look to the life of Peter because I think there's some encouragement here. And as we walk through this, Jesus really wants to get his disciples to the point of understanding the way that he is going to suffer and die. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus teaches them to understand the cross. Verse 21, Matthew uses a phrase, he says, from that time Jesus began teaching them. And when he says from that time, he's really indicating a shift in the nature of Jesus' conversations with his disciples. You see, up to this point, he's been preparing the disciples for life and ministry, kind of empowering them to go out on their own. But right now, he's going to reveal to them the heart of the gospel itself in verse 21, that the Son of Man must suffer and die, and that he will rise again on the third day. And after Jesus makes this proclamation, after he begins to teach them this, that good old Peter shows up again. And I just got to love Peter. Peter just can't help but open his mouth. He's quick to speak up. He's just had this amazing moment with Jesus. We looked at it last week. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And right here, he takes Jesus aside, and he begins to rebuke him. Now, maybe Peter's feeling his oats a little bit. You know, he got it right last time. He's going to take another shot at it this time, but he doesn't do so well this time. My, 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 how the tables can turn so quickly, can't they? And they turn pretty quickly on Peter here. He has one brief insight, and then he turns, and he takes Jesus kind of under his wing, takes him to the side, and he rebukes him, far be it from you, Lord, this can't happen to you. And I was thinking about this, and, and really aren't we the same way? I mean, we go so quickly from student learning to master, we've got this figured out. We go through a difficult time, we're searching for answers, God, would you reveal your wisdom to us? And then God does, and we're good, and we, we go along, we're pretty confident in our own knowledge and our own strength. We pray God says, wait, 
We're like, God, that can't be right because last time you answered. Or we struggle along and we become ill, maybe very seriously or fatally ill. We say, God, you were good and you knew what you were doing all those days when life was good or when it came back cancer-free, but now that it seems terminal, God, you can't know what you're doing on a day like this. We have a child that turns her back on God and we say, God, surely today you have no clue what you're doing. We go so quickly from student to master, we begin telling God kind of what he should be doing. So how does Jesus respond to his know-it-all disciple? Verse 23, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus' language here is pretty blunt. I mean, we see Jesus interact with scribes and Pharisees very directly, but it's unusual for him to deal with a disciple in this way. He says, get away, basically. But the most shocking thing is what? The name he uses for Peter. This is the only time in Scripture we see a human being called Satan. And these words come from Jesus' own lips. Moments before, Peter has called Jesus the Son of God incarnate. And now Jesus calls Peter Satan incarnate. Not really Peter's best day. What is it that makes Jesus respond so strongly to Peter here? Well, Peter seeks a triumphant king. Jesus says he comes as a suffering king. Peter seeks a kingdom of armies, and Jesus says he's building a church of humble sinners. You see, the suffering, death, and burial of Jesus are so central to God's redemptive plan, all that he's doing in the world, that any attempt to distract anyone, even the Son of God himself, from this mission is satanic, even if it's a well-meaning disciple trying to do it. You see, even people with good intentions, even the best intentions, can miss God's plan. Jesus goes on to add that Peter is a stumbling block or a trap. So what is Peter's issue here? What's what's kind of at the root of his problems here? And Jesus says, it's this, Peter, you are setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. In other words, there's something that you can see, and you're responding only to what you can see. And physical suffering and death can be bad, but God is working something above and beyond this, a redemptive plan, a redemptive mission, this kind of global view of life. And Peter, you're missing this. We construct things in a way that's flawed and human. God is designing things in a different way. And how is it that God designs? And we move this now to God's design for suffering in discipleship in verses 24 to 28 as he teaches his disciples to count the cost. We begin reading again in verse 24. Jesus picks up and he told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, Recently, my uh, wife and I, we we were out in town, we were eating, we went into Five Guys. Now, we don't normally go to Five Guys because our little guy can't eat peanuts, so we don't go to Chick-fil-A, Five Guys, I don't Texas, any, any place that, you know, there are peanuts all over the place, you know, we, we don't do that. 
but we were kid-free, and so we were like, okay. So we went there to get a burger, and I walked in. I was so hungry when I walked in the door. There was no way I was walking over to that counter and getting something that said little cheeseburger by it. You know, because it's, it's kind of demeaning. You know, it's like you're only going to eat a little cheese. They got the regular, and they got the little cheeseburger. And I knew there was no way I was going in there and ordering the little cheeseburger, but I walked up there, and this wasn't true five years ago, but you walk up there now, and it, and it describes it. It says a price, and then it says something in parentheses next to that. What does it say? The calories. It lists the calories next to each burger. And I walk up there, and I'm so hungry in this moment. I know, and then I look at the calories, and I'm like, 980 calories. That's, that's a lot of calories. And then I look at the little cheeseburger, and that's 600 calories. And I begin kind of weighing in my mind, I think, like, I am really hungry, but I don't know if it's worth a 1,000 calories to me in one blow like that. I mean, that burger had better be the best thing I ever put in my mouth. What I did then was what? I began counting the cost. You see, they put the calories up there on the board in bright red letters, and suddenly I'm counting the cost between what I could eat and then all the other things I can't eat if I eat that one burger. And today, Jesus teaches us about the counting the cost of following Christ. He teaches his disciples that he's going to suffer. Well, Peter didn't like that. The disciples don't like that. And you can imagine how they like what he tells them now because he tells them they must also suffer. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, the Christian life is a cross-centered life. Our worship centers on the cross. We sing about the cross. We pray to a a Savior who is nailed to a cross. And Jesus also teaches us that our discipleship takes the form of a cross. To follow Jesus is to deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, perhaps you can remember those days, those first days after you had your first kid. And, you know, people told you this was going to be a shock, but you didn't know how much of a shock it was. Until suddenly, you're not sleeping when you want to sleep, you're not eating when you want to eat. Everything you're doing is built around someone else's schedule, someone who can't do anything for you, can express himself, can't serve you in any way. The only thing that thing that, the only thing that, that baby can do is be served, be changed, be fed. And suddenly you're put in a position where for the, the good, the survival of that child, you must deny yourself for the sake of that child. And really, that's what the Christian life is like. You see, to care for that child, you inconvenience yourself. You die to your desires. You kill yourself for the baby's growth. You see, self-denial for the sake of Jesus means that we set aside our preferences, our goals, our desires for the sake of following Jesus. And what Jesus says it is impossible to follow Jesus without denying yourself. In our culture, we're we're not into self-denial, we're into self-affirmation. Be yourself. You do you. Do what makes you happy. And yet, Jesus says, the path of true success lies not in affirming yourself, but in denying yourself. And there's a part of us that reacts to this, but even as much as our culture would affirm self-affirmation, we know that self-denial is necessary for success. Maybe you've heard of a couch to 5K program. Anyone heard of something like this? Okay, that's where you get yourself literally off the couch to where you can run 3.1 miles. Well, to do this, what do you have to do to go from the couch to 5K? You must deny yourself. You can't eat that 1,000-calorie burger. 
You got to get up off the couch. You got to get outside. You got to walk. Then you got to jog. Then you got to run. You got to figure some way to get yourself moving. And every time you do this, you're making a short term choice of pain for the sake of a longer term gain. You're kind of looking to the future. Success lies in denying yourself the immediate desires for the sake of a long-term goal, and the Christian life is the same way. Success and growth are setting aside what I want today for the sake of an eternal mission, for the sake of eternal glory, not what feels good today. Well, in a short time, Jesus is going to take up a literal cross. He will carry it up a hill called Calvary, and on the way there, he is beaten, flayed, visibly marred so badly that he's almost unrecognizable as a human being. The pain of that journey up that hill is unimaginable. In fact, on the way there, he stumbles and falls, and he's so weakened by the torture he's experienced that another man comes alongside him and carries the cross the rest of the way because he's too weak to make it up that hill. After carrying his own cross, Jesus is nailed to this cross, and he hangs there in shame for the world to see. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like to follow me. Enduring open mockery. Enduring shame, enduring pain, Jesus says this is the cost of discipleship. And so following Jesus means a lot of things. It can look a lot of different ways, and there are a lot of different pictures we have in, 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 in Scripture in terms of following Christ, running a race, sitting down to a marriage feast, being part of a body where you're different body parts. But if following Jesus never takes the shape of a suffering cross then we miss what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus says, if you will follow me, you must do three things. Deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. And you better believe, as all these disciples are hanging back and watching Jesus on that road, as none of them run to his aid, as none of them run to help him, as none of them walk alongside him to that hill, you better believe these words must be ringing in their ears. If this is what it costs, if this is what it looks like, do I want any of this? Sounds terrible, and so now Jesus does a little bit of math. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Maybe you know someone like this. They don't, they don't shop based upon how much they spend they shop based upon how much they could have spent and saved. So, so you, your, your bottom line really isn't, it's not how much you spend out of your bank account, it's like how much money you saved on that day. So for instance, you go car shopping. You walk into the car lot and, and, you, and your budget is $25,000 and you're looking for a $25,000 car. But as you walk around the car lot, the, uh, the salesman, he's pretty good at his job and, and he's, can, he's, he's showing you a $50,000 car. But if you buy this car... You can save 10% today, and so you buy a $50,000 car for only $45,000. So you know what kind of shopper you are if on that day you spend $45,000 or save $5,000. You see, it's an equation. But really, what's the difference? There's a $20,000 difference really isn't there in the price of those cars, the budget and the money you actually spend. So do you save money or lose money by buying that car? What a much greater way... Jesus says, pursuing success in this life leads to temporary pleasure, $45,000, but eternal loss, a $20,000 deficit. Imagine that you're a pretty shrewd business person, 
And you invest, invest in a business and you hit it big. I mean, I mean, not small, gigantically big. Fang, Facebook. Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, they're nothing compared to the the business that you invest in. And this business grows and grows and grows so big that you hit it really big and and you make it, you own the entire world. And for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you literally own everything. But you find out at the end of this that it will literally cost you your soul. And for 20, 30, 40 years, 50 million years, you perish in eternal torment. That's literally the equation that Jesus puts it here. Imagine that you, you, you got it so big that you, you gained the entire world, but in the end, you lose your soul. We're really good at practical amnesia. I mean, we eat a donut, and that donut has nothing to do in the end with kind of what happens to my waistline, right? There's, there's no connection between those two events, And it's tempting to live in practical amnesia when it comes to life, too. But there is coming a day when it will all settle out. Verse 27 says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus says, Today I'm going to die, but there is a day coming when I will return in glory and majesty. And on that day, those who choose the world, even the whole world, will suffer. Jesus, the judge, is coming back. In the 18th century, a man by the name of Charles Wesley wrote these words. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and judge will come and take his servants up to their eternal home. I heard on a podcast recently that if you flip to a a songbook written in in the 20th or 21st century... Out of five or six hundred songs or hymns in that book, some 15 or 20 will be about the next life. If you go back a couple hundred years to the 17th and 18th century, you take that same kind of hymnal, you open it up, five or six hundred songs, 100 to 200 songs will be about the next life. And Jesus says the key to understanding the answer to this equation is to remember that Jesus is coming back. Our Lord, the judge, will come. And on that day, he will repay each person. And the great equation that this judge is concerned with is this. What have you done with Jesus? On that day, all your wealth, all your success, all your accrued prosperity will do nothing to save your soul if you haven't dealt with Jesus. Earthly success is real. Earthly success is meaningful, but brothers and sisters, it is temporary. And Jesus is concerned with your eternal soul. On that day, what would you give in exchange for your soul? If you had the whole world, you'd give it. Jesus goes on to say that some people standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There are going to be many events quickly that signal the coming of Jesus' kingdom. In just a minute, we're going to read about the transfiguration. We're going to see the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to see the coming of the church at Pentecost. All of these signs, the rapid growth of the church, signal that Jesus is bringing in his kingdom and that one day he will return as judge. So this brings us to a remarkable vision of Jesus the king in chapter 17. So let's pick up there, chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Well, this is certainly one of the most memorable events in the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the story of the transfiguration. If you think back kind of toward the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, Moses goes up on a mountain and he talks to God. In Exodus 34, we have this story that the Israelites have already broken the Ten Commandments, and so Moses is back up on the mountain renewing this covenant with God, and the people, Moses comes down from the mountain, and when he comes down, Exodus 34 tells us this, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Luke tells uh, this same story about the transfiguration. He says the disciples are asleep, and they wake up, and there's this bright, shining light, and they see Jesus walking with Moses and Elijah. So this probably takes place at night, which makes it an even more glaring sight. When Jesus is transformed, there are two memorable details. Like Moses, his face shone, and his clothes are bright like a bright light. Look again at verse 2. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Like Moses, Jesus appears for a brief time in heavenly glory. And that time with God transforms Moses, it transforms Jesus, and time with God transforms us. Listen to the way Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, he compares it to this, this same kind of event. Moses put a veil over his face. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, time with God, empowered by the Spirit of God, changes us into the image of God. This is God's transforming grace. It's beholding God's image and becoming like that. God transforms us by the power of his grace, just like here Jesus is transformed by the presence of the glory of God. You can tell when people spend time with Jesus. The way Paul explains it, it's not a radical transformation in the same way that it was for, for Moses and Jesus, as in you're blinded by it. He says it's just one degree of glory to the next it's not the kind of thing you see instantly on a day, but it's the kind of thing where you, you, you step back and you look back through time and, and you see a major difference in the life of a person. You see someone who's kinder, someone who's more patient, someone who's gentler, someone who's a little humbler, someone who's a little more 
long-suffering with the faults of others. And so people ought to look at the life of a Christian and see, you know, you can't see that, that degree change instantly. But when you look through time, you can see someone whose life is changed by the grace of God. And don't you know this? As people grow older, they pretty much go one of two ways. They get sweeter or they get cantankerous. And that's just mostly how it goes. And so it's good for us to pause and ask ourselves, what does the degree-by-degree change in my life say about my relationship with Jesus? What does the degree-by-degree change in my life say about the time I spend with Jesus? Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus here, and Luke tells us they're discussing his impending death. Moses and Elijah are significant Old Testament figures. Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, a powerful prophet who didn't die, who was taken to heaven. God points to Jesus as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament tells us about. Jesus fulfills the law recorded by Moses, the lawgiver. Jesus perfectly mediates the word of God to God's people as Elijah the prophet never could. Jesus, the perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king, is here. So if you're here in this moment, the Shekinah glory of God has come down. It's blinding you. What's the proper response? The proper response is to fall on your face and worship but how does Peter respond? I mean, I love Peter, but do you always have a family, uh, 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 do you have a family member or a friend who, who's always got something to say? It's like, this is not a time to speak, and that person, just, they just can't help themselves. They're just a chatterbox. They've always got something coming out, and you're like, shut up. This is a time to listen, not a time to speak. But, but Peter's that person. And so, and so I mean, the, the, these, these reincarnate, this prophet, the lawgiver, they're here, God's here, the son's here, a voice speaking from heaven, and Peter's like, uh, God, it's a good thing we're here. I think, Peter, you're probably not sensing what's going on in the moment. He said, you know, let's put up some tents, you know, let's put up some tents, you know, one for each of you, and you can have a, a place to stay. But Peter, who's interrupting the, the worship in this moment, God's like, that's enough, Peter, and he interrupts Peter. Because the way Matthew tells it is, while Peter is still speaking, a voice speaks from heaven. And you got to think in this moment, Peter's like, I did it again. I messed up again. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, this is not a time for speaking. This isn't a time for chatterbox, Peter. This is a time to listen. Listen to the son. This is the one with whom I am well pleased. It's a moment for worship, not for talk. Well, this isn't the first time a voice is spoken from heaven this way, is it? In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes to the Jordan River, and there John the Baptist is preaching. And on this time, he's dunked in the water, and as he comes up, uh, the spirit like a dove comes from heaven, and a voice speaks, this is my beloved son, the one with whom I am well pleased. In both cases, this speaking is a remarkable gift from the Father to the Son. In the first case, Jesus immediately leaves the baptism and is led into the wilderness to be tempted. And so before Jesus enters into this period of testing and temptation, the Father says, I'm pleased with you. And here at the transfiguration, God again sets his seal of approval on Jesus. Jesus enters into a heightened period of temptation, a heightened period of tempting as he heads toward Jerusalem and the cross. On that day, the Father will abandon Jesus at the cross, and Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he does so knowing that he's doing the Father's will, because here the Father says, I'm pleased with you. Consider for a moment the character of our Heavenly Father. He knows his Son is entering a period of unimaginable testing, suffering. 
And he goes out of his way to meet Jesus here and offer assurance to his son. Okay, there's a bigger picture going on here. Jesus is a redemptive figure, and God is signaling that. But also, as a dad, i got to admit, I'm pretty confronted by this. I mean, how do we do, dads, at knowing our kids? Knowing their fears. Knowing their ups and downs. Knowing what they're going through. Equipping them. Affirming them. Preparing them. Building them up. You see, in God's economy, somehow, our preparation for life's harshest trials comes from a father's ability to love, assure, and offer hope in seasons of life when a kid feels anything but secure. And the truth is, this is as the equation works, as kids grow older, they begin to reject those assurances, don't they? They kind of hold you at arm's length, but don't let that fool you. Dad, your kids need you. They need your love. They need your affirmation. They need your encouragement. They need your building up. If the father, the eternal father, builds up his own son, how much do your kids need your love? Even if it's got to be tough love, they need your love. Your sense of approval, your sense of a buy-in will, will offer them security that they can't get anywhere else. So don't miss the picture of the relationship between the father and the son here. So how can we model that kind of love and affirmation in the lives of our children? The disciples fall on their faces, eyes shut, humbled. Jesus touches them and they open their eyes. And then he's by himself. On the way down, they have this conversation about Elijah and John the Baptist and and, and as they talk back this, they, they teach, reach back to the traditional teaching that Elijah is going to come. And Jesus says, he has come. And then they understand he's referring to John the Baptist. Well, the lives of Jesus and John, God's plan is worked out in suffering and death. And we have three key figures here in Scripture, Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist. What we see is that Jesus is the true and better Moses. The law that Moses wrote... Moses himself couldn't keep, didn't even make it into the land. Yet Jesus perfectly fulfills the law of God. Jesus is the true and better Elijah. The words that Elijah spoke didn't even save the nation, and yet the words that Jesus speaks will save to the uttermost all who believe. Jesus is the true and better John the Baptist. John's suffering leads only to death, and yet Jesus' death leads to life everlasting for anyone who will come to him. All who place their faith in Jesus find forgiveness at the cross, find life at the cross. And so if you're here this morning and haven't yet turned to Jesus, would you do that this morning? 